The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Pod Save the People. Joined today by Vic Mensa, an incredible rapper from Chicago, uh, talking about his art and activism. We also have Secretary Mavis, the former Secretary of the Navy, who served from 2009 to 2017. And then we have uh, a moment with Andy Slavitt, the former head of Obamacare, to give us an update about what happened last week. And as usual, it's the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam. Before we jump in, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like, DeRay, this is really complicated, this work, and how do you know what to focus on? And I was reminded in that moment that this is often about simple truths. When we think about the police and police violence, we know that the truth is that Mike Brown should be alive today, that Rakia and Ayana and John and Tamir and Maya should be alive today, that that's a simple truth. We think about healthcare, we know that people deserve access to healthcare, simple truth. When we think about education, we know that kids deserve a good education. They should have equal access, that there should be equity with regard to how resources are distributed. Those are simple truths. And I found that so often in this work, we can complicate our understanding of what is true. And I will push you to focus on the simple truths. And from the simple truths, complexity flows. Simple truths. This work is often about the simple truths that we make real, the simple truths that we help manifest in the world and make permanent. Let's get into it. And now the news with me, Clint, the resident academic, Brittany, former member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and Sam, your favorite data scientist. Here we go. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett, Miss Fat Yeti on all social media. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith, Clint Smith III, Clint Smith III on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. This is DeRay, DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y. I don't know why I always screw it up. This is I'm DeRay on Twitter. <laughs> DeRay on Twitter. Hey, everybody. I feel like you were trying to play me and my Clint Smith III. I know your your I throws me, Clint. It's like Does so, it throw you. I like. I, I think it's hilarious. Like, I love your I I I Clint. Don't let Jalen get you. Huh? I love it. I, I think it's hilarious. I I I. Because he because your voice, Clint, is just so serious. You're like, hello, this is Clint Smith. I I I. <laughs> it's funny. It's like the beginning of that uh, Kendrick song. Didn't you have a song called I? How's the baby? Baby's good. Baby will by the time his podcast drops be two months old. Whoa! I know it's unreal. We should have a guess uh, the baby's name, um, Baby J. You should. He's not going to say it on the podcast thing, and we can't say it either. But you all should guess what the baby's name is. It is. Yeah, just tweet at me what you think my baby's name is. Um, (laughs) But uh, remember, his Twitter name is Clint Smith. I I I. I I I. Don't let Jeray. Not the third. All spelled out. It's difficult to overstate the extent to which your life becomes not about you at all anymore like it is completely centered around this little human and i tweeted this the other day but like it's also i was thinking about this and it's just so crazy that you are so in love with someone who has never said a word to you and like most of their communication with you is 
like cooing and pooping. <laughs> and, and every time I'm just like, oh, look at you trying to talk to me. And, he's, and, and maybe smiling, he's though. Ass, but in my mind, I feel like he's really, really speaking to me. He is. Okay, Sam, take us away. Cool. So uh, my news today is focused on data. So it's an article from 538.com called Technology is Biased to How Can We Fix It? Uh, and this article chronolo- it, it details the types of ways in which algorithms uh, are starting to be used for a whole range of, of really important uh, life-impacting decisions that institutions and companies are starting to make. So everything from you know, whether you qualify for a particular loan to risk assessments that are being used to determine whether you should be uh, you know, released on parole or probation uh, and to, to a range of other things are now incorporating technologies to sort of um, that were being billed as this way of creating an impartial um, sort of data-driven approach to making important decisions. Uh, and what the article goes on to do is it, it details that, in fact, many of these technologies uh, are actually biased, too, uh, and result in biased outcomes just like uh, the same types of racial biases that we've seen uh, before those technologies were introduced. So one of those examples is risk assessments, uh, where the actual data that they're using to determine whether or not uh, somebody should be released uh, from prison uh, incorporates a lot of biased uh, inputs. So things like whether or not you've had a past conviction, uh, past arrest, uh, even you know the type of neighborhood that you uh, came from, all of those types of factors get fed into the system. Uh, and then it produces an output uh, that oftentimes makes it, it makes it more likely that they will actually wrongly label uh, a black person as being a risk, uh, th- therefore meaning that you don't get released, uh, then they would label a white person with the same type um, of you know inherent sort of underlying, so th- I'll just bring that to the group because I think it's important that you know when we look ahead to the future of you know whether it's the criminal justice system or even issues like redlining uh, and and others, um, you know technologies are now taking a, a bigger and bigger role, uh, playing a bigger role in those decisions. Uh, and if those technologies are biased, like how do we address that on the front end before uh, it cre- it reproduces the same types of inequities that we've seen uh, already happen? Yeah, this article is really interesting, and one of the things that I pulled from it was this uh, 2012 paper that was co-authored by these three computer scientists, and it was talking about how they studied these different facial recognition algorithms uh, over the, you know, throughout um, the country, and they found that these algorithms were less accurate when identifying the faces of Black people, and obviously the implications of that, um, if law enforcement are using these or the FBI is using this, that they can... Uh, mistake someone who's innocent uh, for someone who they're actually searching for, and that's more likely to happen if they're black. And then also, there was a 2016 study by Georgetown that uh, demonstrated that the police face recognition disproportionately affects black people. Um, and so this is one of those things that, again, intuitively, so many of the research studies that we think about and talk about on this podcast sort of are what we call the the water is wet study, um, but but and and makes sense intuitively in terms of what uh, the way that we think about how the world operates and, and the manifestations of discrimination and racism uh, in a myriad of different spaces. But, you know, I think this is important because it sort of disabuses us, dis- disabuses us of the notion that uh, technology operates in a neutral or objective, objective capacity and that the people 
that these technologies are being made by people who have these prejudices, who have these biases, and they're being informed by those uh, historical and social and cultural dispositions. And so it would make sense that the technology that they're producing would go on to replicate and reify uh, the sort of existing stratification that we uh, that we see when, when we're just talking about people rather than computers. This is the exact thought that I had when reading the article. I'm really appreciative to you, Sam, for bringing it to our attention because it's not something that I read often. Um, but yes, tech, all of these things are made by people. Technology is made by people. Algorithms are written by people. Devices are created by people. Um, and people are not neutral, and therefore our technology will never be neutral. But it is a. it really reminds me of the fact that though ending racism, ending oppression feels like such a massive task and an impossible task, it's critical because, to your point, Clint, it will continue to infect every single thing that we do like a cancer. It's also interesting in the fact that, you know, this is it right now. It's a huge uh, sort of risk, but it's also an opportunity. So as these technologies are being developed, I mean, I don't think it makes sense. You know, I don't think it's necessarily possible to sort of dial back the clock and say, like, we're just not going to have technology play a role in these decisions, um, because in many cases, this is already, these are already being used. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity to think about, like, are there ways that these technologies can be uh, shaped to control for these inherent biases that we know happen, that we can measure, um, so that they can actually create a more equitable outcome than, you know, the, when, you know, human beings and human beings alone are making all of these decisions. Um, and I think about, you know, if, it asks questions about like fundamental fairness, right? What does it mean for the technology to be equitable? So if you think about a risk assessment, um, you know, is it fair for that to then use like your past arrest history and conviction history uh, to determine how much of a threat, you know, you are today, if we know that, you know, your likelihood of being arrested and convicted is very different if you are black than if you are white. Um, and if we know that that's true, then how do we actually adjust for that, right? Like, is there a way that we can actually factor that in uh, to create an actual equitable outcome that, you know, heretofore has not happened? When I think about this, I'm particularly interested in things like risk assessments, which are used uh, in courtrooms across the country, not only for uh, setting a bail and bond, but also in the sentencing process in a host of states like Arizona, Colorado, Delaware, Kentucky, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin. And for those of you that don't know, a risk assessment is essentially like a score of how likely you are to reoffend. And most of the companies that run the risk assessments are. Uh, for-profit companies. Uh, most of the risk assessments aren't public, so we don't know fully how they are scored or what is leading to uh, the scores. But in the ones that we do know, we know that they are biased uh, against people of color. And ProPublica did an analysis of a risk assessment that was done by a for-profit company, North Point. And it has a set of questions like, was one of your parents ever sent to jail or prison? How many of your friends, acquaintances are taking drugs illegally? How often did you get in fights while you were at school? And the questionnaire also asks people to agree or disagree with statements like, a hungry person has a right to steal. And if people make me angry or lose my temper, I can be dangerous. And there are other risk assessments that give you a high score, uh, which is code for more likely to reoffend if you come from a neighborhood uh, that has a lot of crime. It's like, well, that disproportionately impacts people of color. So trying to think about how do we 
how do we acknowledge and recognize the bias that is built into technology? Because again, that people are building this and people are building their bias into these things. And like Sam said, uh, it is our responsibility to, to think about how to neutralize that bias so that uh, these tools, if we have to use them, become objective. But we should actually uh, probably get to an outcome where we don't have to use an algorithm to predict whether people are reoffend or not. Because reality is the data also shows that the algorithms aren't very uh, aren't very predictive actually at all. But what they do do is that they mimic the bias of overpredicting uh, that people of color will reoffend in a way that is disproportionate and negative and harmful. I'm next. So uh, I found an investigation that Mother Jones did on a topic that we discuss often, uh, voting rights. But I found it to be a really uh, important investigation because it lifted up some things for me that I didn't even know were happening to the scale that, to which they're happening. It's also a reminder to me uh, that, that Trump is not uh, the virus, he is indeed a symptom of a larger virus, and that things like voters enfranchisement certainly did not start with him. Um, but there are places where he's taking his cues from. So there are three Republican lawyers who used to serve in George W. Bush's Department of Justice, but now work for various um, conservative legal organizations, such as um, the American Civil Rights Union, that's ACRU, not ACLU and some others that have essentially been um, moving to purge voters, um, eligible voters, from um, voter registration lists and pri have primarily been targeting counties across the South and counties across the country that are low-income and majority people of color. Um, we often talk about voter ID and uh, the dismantling of um, the, the Voting Rights Act, but this is one of the insidious ways that on a very local level, uh, these conservative legal organizations have been working to disenfranchise voters. Uh, it's important to note that this doesn't just affect um, people of color. Um, people in rural communities, any community where there's a lot of transients and your, um, your address changes frequently, um, it can affect those folks. It can often affect the elderly and disabled people because one of the tactics is actually to send a letter to the last known address and say that if you haven't voted in the last two years, you need to confirm that you are indeed wanting to vote. And if they don't hear from you by default, they will remove, remove you from the rolls. Um, this has been happening for quite some time. This is a tactic that um, folks started to take on right after uh, the civil rights movement. Um, it had some pretty quick results. In 1972, um, researchers estimate that 12.2 million people were disenfranchised from voting through these tactics. 1988 was the um, lowest uh, turnout for a presidential election in modern history. Um, and so that was the year that, that a lot of people really started to recognize this was a problem. Um, but it is things like purging voters from rolls. It is things like having registration deadlines occur right a, a few weeks before an election um, and people sending out uh, uh, scary emails and mail, mailings to people um, to let them think that they actually are not eligible to vote. That are some of the tactics that are happening right now every single day. And it, it's a re real reminder that we have to stay vigilant at both the federal level and the local level. I'm reminded of my elders who said if voting wasn't important, then people wouldn't have tried to deny our right to it for so long. And still, if it weren't important, people wouldn't be trying to take it away from us right now. I'm really glad you brought this up, Brittany, because I think it's really important for us to focus uh, extensively on local elections. I think, you know, federal and, and national elections are often the ones that get a lot of 
national and local attention. Uh, but, you know, I was reading something the other day that reminded me that only 16 of the 50 states have uh, democratic governors, which is a pretty astonishing number. Uh, if you think about the, the authority, the executive authority that governors have uh, across these states, whether it's the decision to expand or not expand Medicaid, whether it's the decision, as was uh, talked about on the pod previously, a couple episodes ago, uh, with the governor of Virginia, who has the authority to uh, put uh, formerly incarcerated folks back on um, the voting registries. And, you know, the list goes on and on, but uh, we often don't consider the ramifications and implications of these sort of local elections, both on a on a state level, but also municipal and and neighborhood and city level, that all of these different things have uh, huge, huge impacts on our lives. But it's, I think it's really important for us to know and continue to uh, understand the ways that folks are continuing to, under the radar, uh, push back against people's right to vote uh, and make it as difficult as possible um, for people to get out to the polls. No, absolutely. And just to echo that, you know, I think, you know, given the power that state legislatures have um, over our lives, you know, everything from criminal justice uh, reform, which is, you know, predominantly state uh, level uh, to voting rights, which is, again, you know, predominantly, predominantly state level. Um, it is sort of a, a huge opportunity that, you know, in many, in many cases is not uh, being leveraged. You know, when you think about the number of calls that have gone to Congress you know, over the past, you know, I've been the inauguration, um, you know, if a fraction of that many calls went to state representatives, we could see um, really, really harmful bills being blocked in places like Texas, uh, you know, in places like um, actually probably a majority of states now that have passed some sort of voter suppression law. Um, and I think that that illustrates the point that like we have to be engaged at every level. Uh, local, state, and federal, if we're going to actually achieve, you know, far-reaching change, because um, we can flip Congress, we can flip, you know, the presidency, but, you know, the state legislatures will still have uh, most uh, of the power to actually impact uh, those really important issues. And I make you, you know, I've said this time and time again, that people have said that all politics is local. And I think that these past, I don't know, the longest, almost 200 days in our our lives of this administration have reminded people that the federal government actually has a huge role to play that we can't just ignore what's happening at the national level in service of the of the local level. With that said, like you said, Sam, and like Brittany and Glenn have said, is that the local stuff is what you feel most immediately and most consistently, unless it breaks, right? And like the, you know, the, when the federal government is breaking right now, people are feeling it every, every second. But the local level is a huge sway. Clint, I agree with you that it is surprising that in all of the mobilization and, and sort of active activation that's happened over the past decade is that we've only seen marginal uh, movement on like voter registration. We've seen some states go to automatic registration. We've seen it be a little bit easier. Uh, you know, there's some states that do um, automatically register like 17 year olds, things like that, so that when they become old enough, they can they can automatically vote. But I am surprised that this is not a major part of like a party's uh, like the the Democratic Party's platform to move this along. Like that's interesting to me. I also, like you said, am surprised that we don't vote on like Saturday. Uh, but voter turnout has also been so low recently that it makes me think that like, yes, we need to make sure we change people's access to the system. We also need to remember to give people something to vote for. And I think there's so many people who who are like, I voted my entire life and nothing ever changed. Uh, so they have sort of stopped thinking about the vote as a as a way to make an impact. 
And, you know, I think that I would, you know, we haven't talked about this. I think that we would all agree that voting is an important thing, but it's not the only way that you can make a change. But it is a way that you can and you should you should do it because uh, it is it is at its root a way for the collective will of the people to be materialized. But I'm all I am more and more fascinated and intrigued by the way that we help give people a reason to vote. For me, I've been thinking a lot about a piece that was written a couple of weeks ago by Van Newkirk, a writer at the Atlantic and, and good friend of the pod, as we say. Um, and it's interesting because when we talk about the civil rights movement, we often talk about the progress demonstrated through court orders and, and legislative acts like Brownlee Board, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. But what we don't often discuss is the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, which happened in 1965 as an extension of the civil rights movement. But part of what Van argues in this piece is that what we should do is really understand that these two pieces of legislation are very much a part of the civil rights legacy, and that Dr. King and other activists advocated really passionately for universal health care as part of the civil rights agenda. And while Medicare and Medicaid obviously don't go uh, far enough in terms of providing universal health care, on that front, what it did was push the U.S. further in that direction than they ever been. And today, uh, since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, black and brown folks have disproportionately benefited, especially from the expansion of Medicaid. Um, from the Affordable Care Act, and the number of folks helped by Medicaid would be even greater uh, if more, if so many of the Republican governors hadn't so vehemently prevented the expansion of Medicaid in their states, which goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of the importance of local politics, because, you know, the federal government can make a set of legislative decisions, but a lot of oftentimes the implementation of those decisions is left up to the state. So just to bring this together historically, when Medicare was implemented, it was building on the success of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which had barred segregation from entities that received any federal funding. And so this obviously would now, after Medicare and Medicaid, include hospitals, since Medicare's universal coverage of elderly folks brought federal funds to every hospital in the country. And thus, it bound them to the discrimination clauses of the Civil Rights Act. And so this was really interesting to me because I learned a lot, and it's also fascinating to think about the ways that we do that we don't talk about Medicare and Medicaid as an extension of the civil rights movement, um, and and literally something that helped to formally end segregation uh, in you know in hospitals, which is one of the most uh, important social services provided in this country, and and it, this piece did a really good job sort of outlining that history. The piece was so, I agree with you, Clint, the piece was so fantastic in really delving into history. One of the things I found unsurprising, although it was new information to me, was just how much historically the American Medical Association stood in the way of um, equitable health care, of universal health care. I knew that the AMA had been segregated, right? That's why the National Medical Association, a Black Medical Association, had to be formed. That um, that move kind of mirrors multiple industries, right? The the American Bar Association versus the National Bar Association, et cetera. Um, But it was a reminder that um, so many of the institutions that we look to now um, as neutral purveyors of truth, right? That's how we look at the AMA now. um, We're actually not people who were for us historically. Um, and I am, it never ceases to amaze me how much people will work to defend their racial and financial interests at the cost of other people. Um, I was on the Ferguson Commission, and one of the things we looked at was the disparity in um, 
and life expectancy across our region. So in um, Clayton, Missouri, which is a wealthy suburb of St. Louis, the life expectancy is 85 years. Um, and in North St. Louis, which is um, the kind of uh, the blackest part of St. Louis City, the life, the average life expectancy is 67 years. So we're continuing to see the ramifications of those actions today. Uh, and it also points to, and I think Clint, you alluded to this, you know, that, you know, this work is not yet done. Um, and obviously there was this most recent attempt to repeal um, parts of Obamacare in Congress. Um, but also just looking at Medicaid expansion, you know, when you, when you look at the states that haven't expanded Medicaid, um, you know, the majority of the black population lives in those states. Um, and so the, you know, this, these battles are being fought in state legislatures right now, right? Whether or not folks who are, you know, low income uh, are going to be able to, to access Medicaid. Um, those types of battles are happening most, actually most notably in Ohio right now, where, you know, Governor Kasich, has vetoed a bill that would end the Medicaid expansion in Ohio. Um, and the Republican state legislature is one is only a couple votes away from actually having votes to override that veto and end the expansion. Um, and so these are the things that don't often get talked about in the context of you know, what's going on, you know, nationally and with the Obamacare repeal and all that. But, but these things have real, you know, life and death consequences for people um, in states, particularly states that haven't expanded Medicaid uh, and those are the ones where black folks are living. So my news is, you know, one of the reasons why we don't talk about Trump every week on the podcast is like a regular reoccurring sort of staple of the show is because you are bombarded with news about Trump every single day. And while he is definitely wreaking havoc on the country, uh, he is also controlling the news cycle every morning, afternoon and night. So don't necessarily feel the need to help reinterpret what, you know, you're already being bombarded with. But we try to focus on things that you might not see that are also happening every single day that have a bearing on, on people's lives uh, with the particular focus on equity and justice. I say all that as a lead into me talking about Trump uh, because he's ending a savings <laughs> program uh, that was put in by the Obama administration. It's about 30,000 people participating in the program. It's called My RA. Uh, it was a retirement account for low-income people uh, that was a safer retirement account uh, than existed before. And it was for people that couldn't get retirement accounts through their um, through their employers. And about 30,000 people are going to no longer have access to this. They had just started it, so it was in its infancy and it was growing. Uh, the Treasury Department under Trump has said that it was too costly. Uh, so these people are now going to have to figure out something else to do. But I brought it up not only because the program is ending, but Trump is coming through on commitments that he said he was going to make. So, um, you know, in the first month that Trump was in office, he requested a review of the rule that requires brokers to put their customers' interests first when handling their retirement money. And he later signed a joint resolution that reversed a rule that would have made it easier for states to create their own retirement savings programs. You know, in the in the public realm, so much of the news about the administration is sort of the, quote, big stuff. It's about uh, Russia. It is about the the incoherence of the White House staff. But what he's doing methodically in the agency is actually stripping away things that are working in the best interest of everyday people. So what does it mean when now people don't have access to retirement accounts like they used to? Or what does it mean that it's harder for states to set up their own retirement accounts? Or why would you, what's the review of the rule that says that, uh, that the retirement agents actually work in the best interest of the people that they're serving? Like he, there's a, 
there's one way to think about this administration that actually might make the government something that is unrecognizable when uh, this administration ends. And that is not to say the government has always been like the best beacon for people or like the most amazing thing that's ever happened. But you take for granted some of the protections that have been in there until they are taken away. The the argument uh, made by the U.S. Treasurer that the program was too costly is what set my mind into a tailspin. Um, what, what was predicted was that the program would cost $10 million per year for the next several years. Um, and so what that says to me was that it's actually not too much money. It's just more than they want to spend on poor people because this program was built for people who do not have access, as you were saying, to retirement savings through um, their work, right? So we're talking about wage earners. We're talking about people who might bounce around jobs. We're talking about people who are seasonal workers, um, but want to be able to put away money to live the kind of life that we say people are supposed to aspire to, especially in their old age. And if a society is judged by how well we treat our children and our elderly, we are doing piss poor. No, absolutely. I mean, when you look at these, I mean, budgets are a reflection of our values, right? And when you look at the budget, not only of you know the federal government, where you see so much money going to military expenditures, so little money going into education, into helping folks who are low income, um, even the tax code, I mean, the tax code disproportionately benefits people who are, you know, upper middle class and above, right? And, and instead, the tax code should be a place where we're actually uh, thinking really hard about how are we encouraging uh, people to build wealth and, and get savings who are on the lower end of the income spectrum. And instead, those are the programs being cut. Um, but, you know, it's not even just federal. It's also, you know, local and state where you have so much of the state budget going uh, to prisons, and you have so much of the local budget going to police. Um, and I think we have to think about, you know, if if we are to imagine a a more equitable world, you know, what do budgets look like in that context, um, and how do we go about uh, engaging at every level of government to ensure that that the budgets reflect that. And like when you know, we talked before about the relationship between income and wealth, is that it's hard to develop. Wealth when you can't save your income, and it's hard to develop wealth when you don't have assets. You think about retirement as something that, like, people save. People, so many people are living paycheck to paycheck. So, how do we, as a as a society, create opportunities for people to save money in a way that makes sense for their lives? Is like a real that is a responsibility of of the government, especially in the context of the government disproportionately taking away people's assets and income as a part of the historical record. Like, so this is uh, this is particularly unnerving to me because of that. But it's also a great example of how this administration is using sort of the big ticket items that are taking the media every day to distract us from uh, the the insidious work that they're doing in the agencies or not even to distract us per se is because uh, I don't I think that the media is actually complicit in focusing so much on one thing and not focusing on the other thing. But he is coming through on his promise to deregulate everything in a way that will have real consequences for the most marginalized. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two 
two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the factor meals and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken Parmesan. I am a chicken Parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mm, Yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. And now, quick update about healthcare with Andy Slavitt, former head of Obamacare. Hey, Andy, thanks for joining Pate of the People again. You're, you are the most consistent part of the podcast outside of the news section. I think I'm accountable for at least 1% of your uh, of your gray rating story, don't you think? Oh, my God. Yeah, you were the, you were the first episode. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, Love being on your show. Uh, you know, I don't even know where to begin. I, I guess, can you just tell us what happened this past week in healthcare? Like, I, you know, I was up at 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. whenever McCain voted no, but still have a lot of questions about both what happened. And it still feels like the like it might all come back again. So can you just start us <laughs> Wasn't out? Wasn't that, that the most dramatic thing you've ever seen? And certainly in the U.S. government. Yeah, I was like, what is happening? So, yeah, what is happening? Well, the uh, I think the, first the big news. The big news is the major effort that has been going on for months and months, if not years, uh, they, they just couldn't get it done. And the reason they couldn't get it done is because John McCain, uh, at the very end, uh, made the decision that what was going to happen was going to be bad for America, really in two ways. It was going to be bad for people's health care, and that it was just a really bad way for the Senate to do business. And as a guy with cancer, 
and who'd been a veteran of the Senate for so long, he used his standing to essentially step in front of the train when maybe others may have felt that way, but wouldn't have had the courage. And, and, and he really showed the courage uh, to stop the train, along with two great women, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Got it. So, so, so is it dead? Is, is the repeal of Obamacare over once and for all? So I think a good rule of thumb might be as long as Donald Trump is in the White House, uh, it's never dead. He is uh, doing there, – so there are several things going on right now. Uh, number one, uh, Trump is threatening to reduce the pay of people in Congress unless they pass uh, this bill. Number two, he has told the Senate that he doesn't want to see any legislation out of them uh, except until he sees uh, something out of uh, health care. Number three, there are a group of, of Republicans that are still working, try to create another effort uh, so they're not done. And then number four, there are a group of Democrats and Republicans that have begun to work t- together to create some solutions. So there's a lot of energy still. Some of it is, you know, people just living in a little bit of denial. Um, some of it is, you know, quite neg- negative and quite typical. And some of it is even a little potentially hopeful, uh, some of the bipartisan work. Now, I've heard, um, and this is, you know, I'm, I, this will be you teaching me and, and everybody, but I've heard people say that if he can't do repeal repeal and replace or just repeal, that he will weaken it from the inside, that, that he has the, uh, the ability to just do damage uh, administratively. But I have no clue what that looks like or what that means. Do you? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and the principal thing he can do and the principal thing he's threatening to do is to stop payment of a subsidy that insurance companies use to make sure that low-income people can afford their insurance. It's something that has been agreed to by the government. It's something that's been paid every month. And it's something that he has been threatening to stop. And uh, I uh, tweeted called? out this week, it's called the cost-sharing reduction payment, or CSR is how people refer to it. Cost-sharing reduction payment is a subsidy so that low-income people can afford health care. They get right. It helps them pay for their deductibles and their copayments. The deductible is the upfront amount you have to pay before your insurance kicks in. And the copayment is what you have to pay every time you go to the doctor. So cost sharing reduction payment has been in effect since Obamacare passed. Is that correct? That's right. And he could administratively just stop paying it. That's correct. Got it. He could administratively stop paying it. And uh, I I tweeted out this weekend uh, and, and it's, people can, can take a look at what I tweeted through that uh, I believe he's going to make the announcement that he's going to stop doing that this week. And uh, it's actually quite a stupid thing to do because it will cost the federal government more. But there's actually a strategy. There's actually a way that it can be combated if all the states and all the insurance companies uh, line up to do it. And I think if they do that, his sabotage could backfire on him. And what would the states and insurance companies line up to do? Well, if the insurance, if the states allow the insurance company to refile their rates, in other words, insurance companies have to file what rates they're going to charge. If they allow them to refile their rates, they can be refiled in a way that don't cost any consumers any more money and don't even cost the insurance companies any more money. It would actually backfire and cost the U.S. Treasury the additional money based upon Trump's sabotage. 
So in effect, he thinks he'd be sabotaging others. He'd be sabotaging himself. And I, it's a little bit technical how it works, but it's all in my Twitter from, uh, from Sunday. And what do we need to pay attention to uh, in the coming weeks? Well, I think that's going to get a lot of attention on the negative side. Uh, I think there's going to be continued effort to try to stop, uh, to try to introduce more legislation, more uh, partisan legislation over the summer. Uh, but then I think there's also going to be some announcements of some bipartisan legislation that are going to be coming out uh, as early as this week. And I think that's very interesting because there's a sign that there are Democrats and Republicans that want to work together to just put the whole thing behind us. And my rule of thumb is, whether you love the policy or don't love the policy, if it's developed based upon Republicans and Democrats working together, um, then at the very least, it's something that's going through the right process, and I tend to trust it a lot more. I can't imagine any piece of legislation coming just from the Republican Party uh, that would be good for the country right now. So the Republicans need to do is step back, include Democrats, and we'll get to a better place. And what, what do you think that this has done to McConnell? Well, I think there's no doubt that this was a um, defeat uh, within the Republican Party. I think people are very disappointed. Uh, they, you know, from their perspective, they feel like they made a promise uh, for the last seven years. They talked about it as being easy to do. And when the time come, came, they couldn't do it. Uh, and, and that's colored over everything else. That's been the big eclipse. And it's been the reason why they, they haven't even cared so much about what's been in the policy. Uh, they have just not wanted to be embarrassed. And the question is, how will he handle it now that he's embarrassed? Cool. Well, thank you always, as always, Andy, for coming on. Before we go, uh, I know that people tweet you uh, stories every day and wanted to know if there was one that you wanted to share. Sure. Um, let me just read one very simple tweet from a woman named uh, Ziva Mann. That's at Mann, M-A-N-N-Z-I-V-A. And I hope she's listening. And she wrote uh, this right after the uh, bill failed. She wrote, so grateful. My son with hemophilia, quote, now I can get back to living life, not a diagnosis. And there's a picture of a little boy, maybe 12 years old. Looks like he's in the water. And he's got, his, he's got his thumb up, and uh, it is, uh, you know, I mean, living with hemophilia has got to be one of the most scary uh, things. And, uh, you know, I think I read that tweet, and I felt like, well, here's these people who have been thinking about nothing else but how to stop this bill. And this, this uh, little boy is saying, it's time for me to go back and live my life because I'm a lot more than just being sick. I got a lot of, a lot of other things to do. And, uh, I'm pretty happy about that. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for joining us today. And I'm sure you'll be back soon. I'd love to be back. And now my conversation with secretary Mabus, the former secretary of the Navy who served from 2009 to 2017. Secretary Mavis, thanks for joining today. I know that you were Secretary of the Navy from 2009 to 2017, as long as President Obama was in the White House. But what did you do before you were Secretary of the Navy? I was Governor of Mississippi from 1988 to 1992. I was um, ambassador to Saudi Arabia in the mid-90s for President Clinton. And then uh, in the early 2000s, I was 
chairman and CEO of a public um, public company, and uh, and then uh, when Barack Obama ran for president, I endorsed him uh, almost two years before the election, and became his most traveled surrogate. And as I told every audience, I was one of his core constituents. I was a white guy, former governor of Mississippi, and I thought Barack Obama would be a terrific president. Got it. Now, I don't know much about the Navy, uh, and I'm assuming that many, many of the listeners to possibly the people also don't know much about the Navy. Can you just give us like a 101 version of what the Navy does? When I think about the Navy, I think about submarines and ships like uh, that is what I think of. I'm assuming that there's probably a little bit more to the Navy than that, though. Well, what the Navy and the Marine Corps uniquely give America is presence around the globe, around the clock, being in the right place, not just at the right time, but all the time. We, When something happens, the Navy and the Marines can get there faster. We can stay longer because we bring everything we need with us. And we don't have to ask anybody's permission to get the job done. Now, what is the difference between the Navy and the Marines? Well, um, they're both part of the Department of the Navy. The Navy is obviously the the ships, the submarines, um, some of the aircraft. The Marines are our amphibious force. Uh, They kick in the door. They're the most mobile the most expeditionary, the most flexible fighting force that we have. The Navy are the ships and the submarines and a lot of the aircraft and the people that that run them. The Marines are the ground forces that go ashore. Oh, got it. Okay. That makes total sense. What's bigger? How many, who who has more people? The the Navy has about 325,000 people. The Marines have 184,000. Oh, wow. The Marines are the smallest service, and they're the most unique service. As Secretary of the Navy, what was your relationship to the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Were you a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Who were were those people? I feel like we all grew up sort of hearing about the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but it wasn't until I was uh, preparing to interview you that I realized I didn't know much about the difference between the Secretary of the Navy or the Army and the Joint Chiefs. I was the civilian head of the Navy and the Marines. Uh, There's a civilian head of the Army, a civilian head of the Air Force, and then there's the Secretary of Defense, who's a civilian head of the entire Defense Department. Um, Two of the members of the Joint Chiefs, the Chief of Naval Operations, the uniformed head of the Navy, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the uniformed head of the Marines, reported to me. So... um, of the of the four service members of the Joint Chiefs, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, two reported to me. The other two members are the chairman, uh, who is right now a Marine, Joe Dunford, and the vice chairman. Uh, both of them report to the Secretary of Defense. Got it. Okay. Now let's talk about some issues that have been in the news, and I'd love to know what you think about them. So as you know, like the rest of us know, uh, Trump, tweeted a couple days ago that uh, trans members would no longer be allowed to serve in any part of the armed forces. Um, How did that resonate with you, considering you had led one of the major branches of the armed forces? Well, 
I thought it was a crass move, a discriminatory move, and I thought by doing it, he seriously weakened the U.S. military, and he eroded our democracy. Um, the message that he sent was ability doesn't count and that prejudice wins. And what what is so uniquely American is that the principle ought to be if you can do the job, you ought to be able to get the job. And the only qualification for getting the job ought to be the ability to do it. So irrelevant things like what color you are, who you love, where you're from, what gender you are, um, are just that, irrelevant. And it was, uh, um, it denigrated individuals, thousands of them who are serving today, transgender service members who are serving today. And he denigrated people that are doing something that he never did which is serve their nation in uniform. Now, what did you make of the Joint Chiefs statement in which they basically said that they won't enforce the transgender ban that he uh, tweeted about? Well, what they said was you can't change a policy by a tweet. Hmm. They said that they've got a pretty, (laughs) they've got a very well-known, very formal chain of command. And the way you change something like this is you have to go through a process. You can't just wake up one day and tweet out saying, we're not going to do it. Uh, And what the chairman, Joe Dunford, said was, we've got a process. We're going to follow it. And when President Obama uh, decided to open up the service to transgender, we went through about a year and a half process in the Pentagon going through how that would how that would work, what the issues were. Uh, and so to just tweet it out, the Joint Chiefs did exactly what they were supposed to do. Um, that wasn't that wasn't an order. That wasn't you can't you can't change something this serious just by tweeting it out. Which I also think shows that he fundamentally misunderstands our military. And part of that is that in the tweet, he called them my generals. Well, number one, they're admirals too, but they're not his. Uh, Those people uh, defend the United States of America. It's just like the White House isn't his. It's on loan from the American people. And and how was the preparation for the trans community to join uh, the armed forces? Like what, what types of stuff did y'all, did y'all have to consider? It was things like people who were transitioning, uh, what sort of medical attention would they need? What sort of medical, uh, what sort of medical attention would they need after the transition? Um, how, how long uh, the, the transition um, would be and things like that. It was uh, it was very straightforward. You know, in the wake of Trump's tweet, there were people who felt like uh, trans members being a part of the the armed forces would disrupt morale, wouldn't wouldn't be safe for people, would would lead to more um, strife than the necessary, would erode the ability of the the armed forces to fight for the country. 
And that was one of, I was surprised that that was one of the, I guess shouldn't be too surprised that people are transphobic or homophobic, but, but that was one of the things that, that came out. I'd love to know, since I have you here, can you talk about how you saw the change? Cause you were actually, you were there when, when the trans community was actually allowed to serve in the armed forces and you helped bring along that, that change. What, what did you see happen in the armed forces and the Navy specifically, if at all? Well, Ray, that, that argument that it's going to hurt unit morale, that it's going to hurt cohesion, that it's going to weaken the armed forces, that's just an old argument. It's not true. Um, it was, that was an argument that was used in the 1940s when President Truman integrated the armed forces. Uh, that was an argument used in the 70s when women uh, began to go to the service academies. That was an argument when when I was there that was used when we were fighting to repeal the shameful don't ask, don't tell. They said, well, if you allow gays to serve in the military, unit cohesion is going to go down, morale is going to be terrible, we're going to weaken it. Uh, every single time, nothing happened. Every single time the military got stronger. Every single time the folks who said that were just dead, solid, wrong. And they're wrong with uh, with transgender also. I mean, a more diverse force is a stronger force. Not just diversity for diversity's sake, but diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of background. Because if you're a military force and you become too much alike, you're coming from the same place, you're the same type of people, you become predictable. And a predictable military is a defeatable military. And that's the reason that uh, that you just got to have diversity. Finally, uh, this is a democracy. And the military ought to represent the people it defends. And one of the cool things I got to do was uh, name naval ships. And I named them for naval heroes, for Medal of Honor recipients, for Navy Cross recipients, for presidents. But I also named our supply ships, which have traditionally been named for civilians. I named them for Med Grevers and John Lewis, Cesar Chavez, Harvey Milk, Earl Warren, Bobby Kennedy, Sojourner Truth. And it's because you've got to represent everybody. You've got to represent every segment of society. And it's, they've got to, to know that they're military uh, is inclusive and is strong and is representative of the country that they love and that they defend. I've been thinking about issues that I think that the Navy might focus on. And I wanted to ask you about climate change as a national security issue, which I, I've seen you talk about before, but I didn't fully understand it. Can you talk about, I didn't understand in the context of what the Navy might do about it. Can you talk about how that what the Navy's role might be in climate change or what the Navy's role is in climate change? Absolutely. Uh, climate change is a national security issue. It's been recognized as that uh, by, by, by the Pentagon. Uh, in 2013, we put out uh, the, the look forward and the threats that uh, our military was facing and climate change was right at the top. Here's what the Navy, the Navy is America and the world's first responders. So when storms get stronger, when 
uh, sea levels rise, when instability follows, it's the Navy and the Marine Corps who respond. So if you've got a big typhoon that hits or an earthquake that hits, it's the Navy and Marine Corps that, that go to it. And so already we were getting one request for this sort of help every two weeks on average, and the storms are getting stronger. If you look at the Arctic and the ice is melting there, uh, and you're going to have an ice-free Arctic at least in the summer and in the next couple of decades, well, that's going to open up all sorts of things. Uh, Russia has also already said that the waters to its north are internal waters. Well, they're not. They're international waters. And the U.S. Navy is the other people and the U.S. Marines who will have to keep keep those waters international. As the ice melts, you're going to have more competition for resources in the Arctic. You're going to have more cruise ships going there and search and rescue that has to be done. And the, the other thing, um, it's the Navy. The bases tend to be on the water. And if we don't do something about sea level rise, Norfolk in particular, the biggest naval base in the world, is going to go underwater. It's going to be lost. And so it's, and it's not something that's theoretical. It's not something that's a really long way off. It's something you can see. And if we don't do something about it, um, we're going to lose bases. We're going to, begin to, we're going to have more chaos and more instability worldwide, and our Navy and Marines are going to be in the front lines responding to these things more and more in a more and more dangerous situation. Now, what what do you think this administration has done to our reputation abroad? Well, I think it's pretty awful. Uh, in Europe, um, Trump went to the NATO meeting and refused to endorse Article 5. What Article 5 says, and it's the bedrock of NATO, is that an attack on one member is an attack on every member. And everybody was just stunned when he, when he didn't do it, when he wouldn't do it. And it took him more than two weeks after he got home to finally say, yeah, I endorse Article 5, you know, we have been very inactive in the Pacific uh, since President Obama left office. We haven't challenged the uh, Chinese islands in the South China Sea uh, nearly as much. We haven't, uh, he, he hasn't followed through on President Obama's rebalance to the Pacific where we're going to put 60% of our fleet and it's a much bigger fleet into the Pacific. Uh, the, the fact that he cozies up to dictators um, like Putin or Duarte and says nice things about him while running down our allies uh, causes, causes our friends, our allies, the people that we're closest to and that we have to depend on uh, for, for our protection, too. Uh, they... I think they are really questioning America and America's commitment and America's leadership around the world. And 
I spent an enormous amount of time trying to build up those partnerships, uh, flying to, I went to 152 different countries as secretary. And you can surge people, you can surge equipment. What you cannot surge is trust. And we have lost or losing because of this administration a whole lot of that trust. What about Russia specifically? So there's been a lot of conversation about the collusion or interference or the potential collusion between this administration and Russia. Uh, Where do you think things stand from your perspective? Well, from we talked about transgender and the fact that uh, Trump tweeted about transgender. And I think that at the bottom, uh, the reason he did that, the reason he made such an inappropriate speech to the Boy Scouts is to try to distract attention from the Russia thing, because the more information we get, the more serious it gets. I mean, every law enforcement agency that we've got, every intelligence agency that we've got, said that they did interfere, that they interfered in our election, which is interfering with the most basic thing that makes us the country that we are. And I, I don't think there's any question about whether there was interference. There was. The question is, how high did it go? How much did the very senior people in this administration know about it? And that's, those are the answers that the American people have got to have. Because, as I said, this goes to what makes us America, the fact that we have free and fair elections. You've been in a lot of roles in your career, but you've been in three notably notable roles as governor, as an ambassador to a foreign country, and as secretary in an administration for the duration of the administration. Uh, can you? T- I'd love for you to talk about lessons you learned about what it what it's like to lead, uh, given that there's so many people who are finding their voice and their power in this moment. What advice do you have to them about leadership, given that you've led at the highest levels uh, possible within the government? Well, there is the main piece of advice is there's there's no substitute for actually doing it. Uh, Whatever it is, just get out there. Uh, You're going to make mistakes. You're going to you're not you're not going to succeed every single time. But get your nose in there. Try and don't accept the conventional wisdom. I mean, I ran for governor when I was. 38 years old, um, nobody thought I had a chance. The, <clears throat> I, the job I had before, the FBI and I put a lot of county officials in Mississippi in jail. And I was told that was political suicide. Well, turned out that wasn't the case. Turned out that people were, were hungry for anti-corruption, uh, for cracking down on people who were stealing. And You know, there are a lot of leadership lessons, but they can be boiled down to a couple of things. One is just do it. The second is pick something that is important and that you can measure and then focus on it. You can't do a thousand things. You can do only a very few things. You can move the ball only on a certain number of things. And you've got to be relentless in that 
in that focus. And third is you've got to explain what you're doing. You've got to be able to tell a story. You've got to have a narrative. You've got to be able to say, here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. Even as Secretary of the Navy, where I had two military services reporting to me, I couldn't say, do this, do that, and people would just do it. Um, I had to I had to explain why we were doing it, why it made a difference in their lives, why it would make us better fighters, why it was important that we do it. You have to give people the reason to believe. You have to give people the reason to do things. And, you know, it's, I've, I've had an incredibly fortunate life, and I have had some of the best jobs that uh, a person can have. But the last lesson that I learned was when my father died a year before I was governor. But the only thing he told me about going into politics, because he he thought it wasn't a good idea, but when he figured out he wasn't going to dissuade me, he said, be honest. Be honest with the people that you're asking for their vote and be honest with yourself. Never try to... um, Never try to fool yourself that you're doing something that you really shouldn't do. And what? And now another question is: um, What is the relationship between the Navy and the other branches of the armed forces? So there's the Navy, there's the Marines, which is together. There's the Air Force, and then there's the Army. Right? That's the. Those are the buckets. Right. And what's the relationship between the Navy and the Army and the and the Air the Air Force? Well, of course, my first reaction is that the Navy and the Marine Corps are just way better. But the, the, real, the real answer is they're all part of the Joint Force. Uh, the, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, and the combat commanders, uh, the, the folks who, um, you know, like Central Command, which takes in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, there's a four-star uniform in charge of that. And what the military departments, what the civilians, like the secretaries, do is we provide the troops, the ships, the things for them. And the relationship between the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines is way closer on the inside than you would think on the outside. Uh, there's, There's... There's rivalry to be sure, but they're all we're all in it for the same thing, and you really can't um, move up in the military if you are just only concentrating on your service. You've got to you've got to serve in these joint capacities. You've got to serve in places where you command not just sailors during the navy, but also airmen, soldiers, marines. Cool. I think that is, I think that is, it. did you, this is just so I understand, did all the, so I know that the Joint Chiefs meet all the time. Did the secretaries meet often too? Like, did you meet with the secretary of the, the army or did you guys only go to cabinet meetings? Um, we, we met formally and informally. There were, we spend a lot of time together. The, the secretaries do. Um, just to make sure that we're not, 
um, that we're not duplicating each other's efforts. Just and and we were all in the Obama administration. We were all close friends. Uh, even even though the the Secretary of the Army was a former Republican congressman from upstate New York, um, he and I were great friends. And uh, the, um, Debbie James, the Secretary of the Air Force, and I were very close colleagues. We get together a lot. Um, as I said, sometimes there were formal meetings. More often than, than that, though, they were just pick up the phone or walk down to somebody's office. Well, there we go. Thank you, Secretary, for, for joining us on uh, Pod Save the People. All right, man. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with Vic Mensa, a rapper from Chicago whose album, The Autobiography, as told by Vic Mensa, just came out. Vic Mensa, thank you for joining today on Party of the People. Thank you for having me. Your album comes out soon. Yes, July 28th. And I heard it uh, recently because it's streaming on NPR. Mm-hmm. And it is titled The Autobiography. Yeah. And it is actually autobiographical. Yes, it is. I can attest to it because I listened <laughs> to it and I learned a lot about you. You're from Chicago. Yeah. And one of the first songs that I heard that made me want to connect with you was the song that you wrote about Laquan McDonald, 16 Shots. Mm-hmm. And before we talk about that song specifically, I'd love to know, um, how do you think of your role as an artist in this moment? Like, what does that mean to you? to be somebody who is a young black man who's from a city that has struggled with uh, police violence and community violence uh, and somebody that makes music. I think art has such a possibility to influence the minds and the consciousness of the people. I think that rap in particular is one of the main modes of communication in our community, if not the most broadly just like watched and interpreted mo- method of communication in the black community, especially especially amongst the youth. You know what I mean? So coming from Chicago, where the situation is so polarized and it's such a vicious cycle of violence, and it really involves majority of young black men from 15 to, you know, 21, 22. That's... A, Niggas capping out around like <laughs> twenty three, you know, twenty four is lucky, and um, and they rapping about it, and they listening to rap, and uh, they're not learning anything from it. So I want to be somebody that can that can like inform and educate and empathize through music, so that people can empathize with me and maybe 
in this album, though it's not very uh, explicitly political, I just try to be very honest and vulnerable about my own experiences in ways that I hope people can resonate with and maybe turn that lens on themselves and and think about why they are the way they they are, why they do what they do, and you know ultimately um, just try to add an element of uh, reality to the culture. And I don't mean reality like keep it real reality, you know, but like real, 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 keep it actually real, you know? <laughs> um, and like be honest about what's going on out here because it's like I can't sugarcoat it and I can't act like um, like this violence isn't inside of us and it hasn't been embedded into our consciousness. But I want to explore why it's inside of us. And I want to explore what, what it does to us emotionally and what what we're repressing emotionally that's being reflected um, through aggression and hyper-masculinity. And I also, in the album, you know, wanted to explore what it looks like when when we're able to to kind of to let that die inside of us, you know, and, and, and paint a picture of a vision for the future that is more unified because there's no chance for us to come out of this situation without unity. You know, you got everybody on every front pretending like they know what to do or throwing their hands up. The police don't come. There's no salt. The murders don't get solved. Donald Trump talking about sending in the National Guard. And ain't none of that shit going to stop the problem. Until we unify, there's no chance for the violence in Chicago and and black communities across America and you know just communities across the world basically to to move towards peace if we're not together. Now what you I know that Chicago is important to you. You talk a lot about Chicago. It's in your music. It's in the interviews you've done. I know you. Um, what was it like growing up in Chicago? And how has that influenced the way that you make your music? Man, growing up in Chicago for me specifically was at times kind of like a dual existence because um, I come from a, a strong family-oriented household with two parents. And and my father's West African. He's Ghanaian and he has a PhD. And my mother's of Irish and German descent from upstate New York. And she's an educator too. Um, and they met in Africa. So I'm not really coming from like a black background traditionally, you know? Um which is a whole thing anyway. I don't. I think that the whole idea of black and white, you know, is really a very much an American construct and doesn't really reflect anything. But I say that to say that um, in the home, it was one situation. And then outside, I started to grow older and realized that the world viewed me through a certain lens. And where I didn't feel so racial uh, when I was seven years old or something. By the time I'm 12 years old and I'm telling, you know, some of the stories that I tell in the beginning of this album where I talk about, like, being 12 years old and realizing the difference between black and white and police throwing me off my bike onto my back. Um, I'm realizing that the rest of the world doesn't know shit about my home. You know, they don't know my parents. They don't know who I am as a person. And in a lot of situations, especially with the police, um, they don't care, you know? And so mm-hmm. as as a kid, 
you pick up on things, but they don't always fully, um, don't always make sense to you, you know, but maybe they, in, they in, influence certain things in you. So as a kid, you know, being put in individualized education programs and being like at times like kind of labeled like I was slow or something because I was uh, maybe acting out or they didn't know how to deal with me. You know, I mean, you know, as well as anybody, because you have experience in the school system, you know how broken the school system is for for black youth, you know, and and we're we're labeled from day one, you know, as being problem children. They don't know what they don't know how to deal with us. And this is even me coming from a from a strong family background, you know. Now, imagine my boy Eddie Simmons, you know, coming from a broken home and he's the first kid that gets held back in school. And I watched him be the first kid to get failed in third grade. Mm -hmm. Then by the time he was 19, 20, I saw his face on the front page of the newspaper for catching a body. And now that's it for him. But I watched them grow him into a killer, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess in certain ways... I felt ostracized uh, growing up as I as I started to get older, particularly, um, and and that made me, in turn, develop like a, a, an aggression, and uh, and it's 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 so it's just something that exists in Chicago, and it's just the reality. Now, there's a lot of great things about Chicago. You know, growing up in Chicago, I. Um, Got into hip hop, you know. I learned about graffiti, skateboarding, and music. Are you and a graffiti artist? That's how I started. Was graffiti. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was like where I started at before I rapped. And was, you were in a you were in a group before, weren't you? Yeah, I was in a band. Okay, what did you? Were you the were you the rapper? Yeah, the I was rapping in the okay. band. Do you play an instrument? I play piano a little bit now, but I mean, I can't even say I play piano. But <laughs> I'm learning to play piano right now. What made you, what made this album be so personal? Like, why did you, was there, what was the impetus for that? Um, the album's so personal because it was my way of coping with everything that I wrote about, you know? I, I kind of felt like these aren't, just things for the most part that I wanted to say, you know, the things that I had to say to move on and move forward. Um, I think this album is like, is like, it was therapy for me. And um, that's why I even say in a certain song, I'm like, the beat is my therapist, skateboard, paint the picture. In this song called Wings, I did with Pharrell. And uh, yeah, this 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 album was therapy for me. And, and um, I wanted to use it in a lot of ways to, address things that I had trouble speaking about to, to people, um, to address things that were keeping me up at night and, like, I was having nightmares about and be able to to vocalize these things and put them into the air. You know, I feel like without without that, then I could never grow from from these situations and, and these burdens that, that uh, I was carrying. Um... I had to grow from them, and I also, in in a lot of ways, wanted to make music that was so overtly personal, honest, and vulnerable mm-hmm. that people listening to it, that kids listening to it, you know, might be able to erase some of the shame that they felt from some of their 
from <laughs> some of their situations. You know, <laughs> I feel like, not feel like, the, just the, the truth of the matter is that um, in our community, mental health is like hugely stigmatized. Um, as are a lot of things. Is that why you, you talk about addiction and depression? And- well, I talk about it because it's because I have to um, for myself, but I also I also talk about it to try to to try to help other people dealing with those things and give them maybe like that vote of confidence that you can uh, seek help. You know, you can speak about these things. There's a line um, in a song, and again, when I listen to it, I don't have the the song tracks. <laughs> but there's a line that says, "We could be free if we knew we were slaves to the pain of each other." Yeah, it's the last song. It's called "We Could Be Free." We could be free. And um, in this in this song, you also say, I think it's a song, but it's "Black Lives You Refuse to Include." Mm-hmm. Is that song right? Uh, can you talk about what what what's your goal with a song like that? Uh, and I ask you because you just talked about this idea of pain, right? Mm-hmm. And like, what does it mean to live in a world where the system sometimes pushes us to fight each other? And like, what? Do, how do you think about? Uh, why did you make that song? I made that song because in the in the arc of my journey in this album, I experienced all of these things to come to a point around three quarters of the way through with the song Wings that I referenced a second ago, where I let I let a lot of these things in the ego die within me. I let some of this pain and, you know, given that this is art, and sometimes I have to learn to, to listen to my own songs and try to learn the lessons that I've already written and realized. But, you know, in the arc of the album, I let, like, the pain from my brother, my brother being killed... Um, I let that die within me. And I show how that pain influenced me to go and act certain ways that I, you know, really had no business acting and and lashing out aggressively um, and going through things with depression and drug addiction. I had to let all those things die so that I could have a vision for something, something more peaceful and pure. And that's what we could be free is. And I I wrote that song. um, A friend of mine named Jizzle actually wrote wrote some of that song with me um she's really talented and the slaves to the pains of each other that um that 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 line is is really based on uh it's influenced by who was it Harriet Tubman that said I could have freed more if they only knew they were slaves mm-hmm. so I think that was subconsciously I was thinking about that um but more presently, I was really thinking about how people all across the world right now are, are being pitted against each other. You know, it, we have it in America from from Jump Street where you had poor whites pitted against the slaves so that they wouldn't unify and look towards the master's house on the hill. And mm-hmm. you have poor whites that are, be, that are being given the title of like, slave catcher or whatever they call them, you know, put them on slave patrol and make them hate each other so they don't realize that they're both sharecroppers right. at the end of the day. Um, so we're living with that. And then you got this Willie Lynch mentality where they make me hate you because your skin's darker than mine or me like look down on you or you look down on me. And 
I mean, you've read it before. Willie Lynch, How to Break a Slave. And it's like, you know, make the lighter ones hate the darker ones. Make the darker ones hate the lighter ones. Remove the men from the family. Uh, we still have that going on with mass incarceration right now. So basically, they set a, a pattern in motion, in, you know, 200 years ago that still defines uh, the place of black Americans, of African Americans, I feel. And so... Now we're dealing with now we're dealing with a situation where everyone is everyone's pointing their anger and aggression at everybody else uh but it's really just out of pain though you know and the same with Mexicans being vilified with mu- with Muslims being vilified and Islam Islamophobia all across the western world um but it's really just pain. it's people in pain trying to find a, an answer or a solution and there's people in power telling them that here's your enemy uh, but so that's why when I say if we knew we were slaves to the pains of each other um, because it's just like kind of, kind of recognizing that if, if we could free ourselves from from lashing out and free ourselves from hatred um, hatred that's born out of our own pain and kind of recognizing that and see my enemy as my brother. That's the line that comes after that. Mm-hmm. And recognize what's more alike in us than what's different because we have so many more similarities than we have differences, just human beings. But empathy, that's all. The song is about empathy. Mm-hmm. That's all it's about. You're really candid about um, about sort of suicide, about addiction. What uh, For people who are struggling with addiction or struggling with depression, what do you, when they come to you and they say, like, what do I do? How do I get out of this? Why should I still have hope? What do you say to those people? Or or if they ask you, where do you find strength? And I say that both of my parents are addicted to drugs. My father raised us. My mother left when I was three. Um, you know, she just came back. I'm, I'm 32. She just came back a year ago, like, in our lives. So I know what it's like to grow up in a community of recovery, but I'd love to hear you talk about uh, what you say to those people who ask you for advice. I try to I try to encourage people that speak to me about uh, addiction and depression to to seek real help. You know, I try to encourage them to seek help and and. Therapy. I think that therapy is something that everybody, if they can, everybody should be able to have. I think that that should be covered by insurance. That should be subsidized just so everybody, everybody needs to unpack. And that's what this album is about for me um, is unpacking. And so when people hear that and they're going through certain things, a lot of people resonate with that and and reach out to me. And, you know, I, I just tell them to 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 not be afraid to you know, get help. That That's what did so much for me was having having a woman in my life that was selfless enough to to look past me hurting her coming from a hurt place myself and just and push me to get help and push me uh, to remember who I was, because it's, it's easy to it's easy to forget yourself when when you're not yourself and you're doing drugs and not that, you know, drugs are a problem. Plenty of people do drugs and it works out for them. Um, but for me, it didn't work out. <laughs> and I didn't feel like myself anymore at all. And this woman really pushed me in the right direction. And from there, I was able to really, like, regain my sense of self. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. 
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. If you had to go back to your 17, 18, 19-year-old self and gave him advice, what, what would that advice be? Don't forget your purpose. That's what I would tell like a 17-year-old. 18-year-old, 19-year-old version of myself. Um, because, you know, when I was around 19, that's when I, I just started to go on this path of dependence on drugs, which led me to making music I didn't really believe in, saying things that that I didn't honestly connect with. And maybe following some trends and just different things that aren't me, you know. I I came into into writing inspired by Tupac and inspired by Common and inspired by Malcolm X and Huey Newton and Kurt Cobain. And these are the reasons that I make music. That's why I started. I didn't start because of like rappers had chains and they had girls and they had cars. I I didn't I didn't connect with that the same way, um, you know. So. If I had advice for a younger me um, or for just young artists Mm -hmm. is that don't forget why you're here. And if you're here for those reasons, then do that. But if, you know, if you're like me and and, and you wanted to shed light um, on some of the darker corners of, of the world and of the community and you wanted to spread hope and you wanted to invoke real conversation and real thought then that that's something that you have to remember that you do have a responsibility I, I went through d- certain phases and periods when I forgot about responsibility and I, I remember the thought of like eh, fuck this shit I'm I, you know what I mean I'm 19 I'm 20 I'm in Europe like going crazy like I, I don't have to talk about anything I could just fucking talk about partying and bitches and this is what everybody else is doing like I'm not a motherfucking role model I didn't come in this bitch to be a role model um and you know while I still I'm not always a role model because I'm just a person I'm just a young man um I do recognize my responsibility though as somebody with a platform and not only with a platform, but also with perspective. You know, a lot of people, you, you can't ask them to talk about uh, social issues and what's going on in the world because they don't know it. But I know it. So I have a responsibility. How do you stay informed? How, how, how do you make sure that the perspective is, is informed? I read a lot, man. You know, um, I always have been a reader. I, I read the news too, but the news is like I, I love when I'm engaged enough, like in a book, to not read the news because the news is just like a feedback loop of 
of Trump right now. <laughs> Do you have, uh, are there books that have particularly shaped the way you think about the world? Yes. Um, my album, The Autobiography, is inspired by Malcolm X's autobiography. And that was one of the first books that really opened up, op- opened my mind up just socially, politically, and intellectually. That book was a uh, square one for me. That was like... In what way? First floor. Um, seeing Malcolm's transition, you know, Malcolm's transition as a man from being in the streets and being uh, a hustler and like a a pimp and a dope dealer at times, like Malcolm's transition um, when in prison to harnessing that energy into something progressive was so inspiring to me. And also his next transition, his later transition near the end of his life when he kind of stopped subscribing to uh, the Nation of Islam and um, and kind of got, got some ideas that were, were more based in unity and less exclusive of people. It was just ultimately inspiring for me. Seeing Malcolm take his, his energy that had by prox that just had by default landed in a destructive path because that that's what I was talking about earlier the design of the black man in America um want, wants you to be destructive and Malcolm was able to take hit that energy that was destructive at a point in time and make it so constructive and that was super inspiring to me and so that that book kind of opened me up to revolutionary suicide by Huey Newton that's a book that was majorly uh, influential to me. And, I mean, Huey is just uh, a, a different beast, 100%. You know, he learned a lot from Malcolm. So it was kind of like carrying on that school of thought, but um, in his own era. And I really, really resonated and connected with the Black Panther Party's support of the community and protection of the community and you know free to water free to land free breakfast programs for the kids and put the patrols patrolling the police before they shut down the loophole in the law patrolling the police with the shotguns i was just like man i'm tired of getting harassed by the fucking police i'm only 16 you know and i'm i'm four years or some four or five years into being harassed by the police and told that they was gonna punch me in the fucking face and you know being thrown up against the wall i'm fucking tired of this shit (laughs) so i'm feeling him (laughs) him that's like oh the police they over there messing with with one of the brothers get his ass like i i really i just connected with that and then um you know from there that's like a that's the headline. That's like the attention grabber. And then as as I started to study him more and the things and his words and his speeches and, and you know, read Revolutionary Suicide, I uh, I just, uh, I was very inspired by the uplifting of the community and how much the Black Panther Party put focus on 
including and educating the common man. Because I feel that very often the uh, the advancement of the community is like put in the hands of like Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson or uh, like black leaders and organizations and people that ain't got no motherfucking connection to the niggas on the block really bearing the brunt of America's oppression. And those are the niggas that I'm seeing outside my window. And I'm like, you know, how how do we how do we work on this situation without being able to speak to them and speak their language and show them what this can do for them, show them what they can do for themselves. Why did you do 16 Shots? Like, what made you write that song? So 16 Shots, I was I was in, I was in L.A. the day before Laquan McDonald's video was set to be released. It was like a Tuesday, and the video was supposed to come out Wednesday. I remember I had seen it on the news, but then my boy Malcolm London gave me a call, and he was like, you know, this video is coming out tomorrow, and um, we're organizing. And Malcolm London is a poet, artist, and and organizer, activist from Chicago. And he worked, he was at the time um, working with a group called BYP 100. And um, so he told me that BYP was was doing major work on the ground the next day. And I'm like, I bet, you know, so I just jumped on a flight. I went back to Chicago. And um, so we're out there and, uh, you know, the energy is very tense and, uh, and, Really, that video was just so bone chilling. It was like, wow, you know, 16 shots and just watching the smoke rise as bullet after bullet hit Laquan's body. And this man just keeps shooting. Then he goes over and and kicks him. (laughs) It was like, if we don't stand the fuck up right now, who are we? If I'm not, if I'm not there for this, um, then I don't, I don't know myself. I had the idea to make a song, 16 Shots, ever since we were out there chanting 16 shots, 16 shots in the street. I was recording it on my phone and I had the idea to make a song of it, um, just to, you know, to, to, to shed light on the situation. And because I, I felt like the murder of Laquan McDonald in Chicago, you know, it was coinciding with so many other uh, situations that were basically the same uh, around the nation. And I really felt as if the murder of Laquan McDonald was basically, it's like Emmett Till. You know, it's it's Emmett Till, it's Trayvon Martin, um, it's Mike Brown, and the list goes on. You know, in this moment, we have both grown up in a world that is... Uh way more inclusive and we're talking about things in public that we've never talked about before. I I often talk about protests as the idea of telling the truth in public and we're talking about the trans community and black women and sexuality in ways that we've never talked about before. Definitely not when I was in high school. Um, What is it like to be an artist in in the context of this moment of inclusivity in public that we've not seen before? I think it's very exhilarating. I think that it's challenging 
because that's the nature of touchy subjects, <laughs> you know, is that they're, it could be hard to, to, to talk about, think about, and, uh, ultimately like accept. And all of us have these implicit biases and these societal ideas that like have been formed from years and years of information and not all of it was real. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. Uh, if you do this, if you're a man and you do this, that's bad. You know, I remember being, I remember being like fifth grade, fourth grade, maybe. I had a teacher named Mr. Brady. And um, so I like, I guess I had my hand like this, you know. He, and he has his wrist like yeah, down. I had my hand, my my wrist limp in my hand. I was just standing there. I wasn't really thinking about anything. Um, and my boy, he was like, yo, don't do that. Because that's why niggas say Mr. Brady's gay. And, you know, Mr. Brady is like, he, he, I, li- I like Mr. Brady a lot, too. He was one of the other few teachers that, that I really like. Um, he's not gay, he, you know. He's just not. And uh, But I remember being like, oh, shit. I I ain't finna do that then, you know? Um and it's just little things like that 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 but it's you know, it's the little things and snowballing the bigger things and also just um so many pressures telling us how to be, who to be. And this moment in time I feel like is far more inclusive and accepting of just being who you are. And it can be hard to break those ideas from the past though and it could be hard to um to challenge what you think you know like i remember having a a huge argument with my boy about whether it was okay for jaden smith to wear a dress in a louis vuitton ad hmm. and this is like a turned into a shouting match it's and all what were the two sides what side were you on Yes, it's fucking okay. You know, let him do whatever the fuck he wants to do. Um, and his side was like, niggas shouldn't be feminine, man. Fuck that. Niggas shouldn't be so feminine. Like, he does that shit, then other niggas gonna think it's okay to fucking be feminine. And I'm like, what's wrong with that? You know, if that's who he wants to be. Um, and it's not hurting you. And it's not hurting anybody. Then I feel that everybody should be able to be who they are, whoever they want to be. It, as long as they're not hurting other people and imposing themselves on somebody else in a damaging way. Being an artist in this current social climate can be uncomfortable. And I think that it's important that we are uncomfortable and we make people uncomfortable in order to shake up and reframe the way we think about things. Now, rap is often seen as misogynistic and homophobic and sexist. Uh, what is your either response to those uh, claims, or how do you how do you work to make sure your music is neither of those three or none of those three? I think uh, rap can definitely be all of those things, and rap is just going to reflect where we are as a community and as a people. Um, and we have a lot of fucking work to do in terms of valuing our women, valuing our brothers, 
um, valuing our brothers of different sexu- sexuality. And we got to do that work as, as, as people. We have to do that work uh, as a community for rap to grow past those things. And I think we got to hold ourselves and each other accountable. Real talk, you know. And I I made mistakes. I've said things in the past that I don't believe in, that maybe I was going for shock value or whatever, but it was hands down misogynistic. Um, and, you know, there's even a couple lyrics on this album that I that I probably would change. And I didn't want to use the word bitch in reference to to women I was really just trying to tell some stories and um and and it's a word that I used that uh I just I I think that like I said we got to hold each other accountable and hold ourselves accountable and there's there's too much acceptance of misogyny and homophobia that goes on and rap, hands down. Niggas let it slide. Um, and hip-hop and in general, like, we, we still got R. Kelly out here. You're right. You know, R. Kelly's still out here, and we all just fucking looked past the fact that he peed on an underage girl like 10 years ago. Right. 15 years ago, maybe. And he's still out here victimizing people and we look past it because we like this fucking music and we do that still to this day i want to know what do you say to the people who uh are either losing hope right now or have lost hope people who look up and they see trump and they're just like game over right like that they can't do anything or they they think about the violence in chicago as something that just has to be a part of the world that it, it will never change what do you say to those people you know the night that the election happened. I was in Atlanta working with the Dream, and I saw all the red on the TV, and I knew what was about to go down. And I just kind of collapsed in my chair. And this older black woman was like, "Don't give up now, baby. <laughs> Don't give up." <laughs> and I talked to my dad later, and you know, my dad's been here since the seventies, and um, he was like. We survived civil rights movement. We will survive this. And so as easy as it can be to feel very discouraged and to feel defeated uh, by all the hate in the world right now, in the government and overseas and in the neighborhood, um, As easy as it can be to feel defeated, we'll never defeat all of this sometimes insurmountable pressure if we give up. We can't give up. People have been through so much for us to even be here. I try to draw strength from from the ancestors, man. You know, I'm African, and that's a major thing in uh, just our culture is lineage and ancestors and the power of those that came before us. I try to look at at people, um, you know, even more recently, I try to look at people like Tupac and I, I try to look at Malcolm and Huey and, uh, and, and draw from that, from, from their energy and, and, uh, 
and build on what what they started and, and recognize that men and women have sacrificed so much for me and for us to have the freedoms we do today, even if we have a, a lot of oppression still alive and racism still alive. People have sacrificed so much for us to have what we have now. And um, we would be doing a great disservice to their efforts and to our kids and our kids' kids if we felt defeated um, and we gave up and we and we stopped working for towards what we believe in. Well, Vic Mensa, thank you for coming through to Posse of the People. The thank album comes out me. on uh, July, July 28th. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Party of the People. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And make sure that you tell a friend. See you back next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.